Genesis 22. This is an interesting, a very interesting passage. Probably one of the passages that we are very familiar with. It's one of the, the basics. If, if there was like a basics Christian Bible knowledge pack, this would be included in there. Genesis 22 with the offering up of Isaac. It makes some uh, significant parallels in the book of James, which is actually where we're going to be next week, starting going through uh, the the epistle of James. Uh, And so it's an interesting segue. Didn't plan it that way, but just seemed to be the right right place to move it on. And so we'll come back. There's so much left in Genesis uh, with the other other patriarchs. But these are our roots. This is our heritage. This is a Christian heritage. If you are... If you are a believer in Christ, then you are linked to this. This is, this is kind of like getting on um, one of those uh, ancestry websites and, and seeing your, your, your great-great-great-great-great-great-grandfather. And, and uh, though there's not a blood relation, uh, there is definitely a relation in Christ. And so we see this is, this is kind of where we came from. This is where the promise began. And this is how I'm even included in this. And so as we read through these, I hope that you're, you're catching those uh, those little lessons there. And then also as we try to find application each and every week as to what can be done with this, uh, why this is in the Scriptures. And so I hope that you're, uh, that, you're, that you're gathering things out of it. And if you miss some weeks, of course, these are always uh, put up online so you can listen to them again. Put the, put the notes in there in the bulletin so you can follow along. I don't like even doing fill in the blanks because if you miss a week, uh, I don't want you to be like, oh, I have no idea what that meant. Uh, but, and, and so I, I just want you to have those things there with you. Genesis 22, and uh, the first 19 verses, really the, the, the first 20 verses there uh, are the story, and then the last four there are kind of uh, part of, they go with the narrative, but we're, we're not including those in the, in the message today. Abraham had waited, as you know, 25 years for God to fulfill His promise. And now through miraculous grace and divine intervention, that promise has been realized in his son Isaac. Abraham, as we looked last week, has enjoyed a time of peace, stability, success. And all of those things he recognizes as God's gifts to him. And for years now, we don't know exactly how long it has been since Isaac's birth until now, but we know that uh, we, can, we can trust that Abraham has relished every day and every moment with his son. Because he recognizes how greatly God has blessed him in giving him Isaac. You ever had a blessing like that, an answer to prayer that has kind of just been put into your, in front of your face on a regular basis and you're reminded God did that? Maybe it was a, a health issue. Maybe it was a financial issue. Uh, maybe it was just something, something uh, temporary, but you realize God made this possible. God made this happen. There was no way this was going to happen uh, by my own doing. And that's, that's Isaac for Abraham. God has proven Himself good and faithful to Abraham time and time again. And Abraham has learned. We have followed his story. We have followed the ups and the downs. And Abraham has learned over time to trust God and to follow Him by faith and leading his family to do the same things just as God knew that He would. Chapter 18, God knew that Abraham would cause his family to follow in these footsteps, and we see he has done that. Yet for all the patient waiting and the faithful obedience to God, Abraham is not done. There is one more story to be 
to be uh, told before Abraham is kind of passes off the Bible scene. God has one more test for his friend and for his servant. So what we see here at the beginning of this story is what I'm calling God's call to worship. This whole passage that I hope that you'll see as, as we go through it is really all about worship. We ha- there are so many lessons to be pulled out of Genesis 22, but the big one, the overall one, the one that I've chosen to, to highlight is this idea of worship. Now You may not see worship right off the bat, except for the one mention of it in verse number 5, but let me try to help you to see uh, what I see in this, in this passage. We see uh, in, uh, in, uh, in verse 1, it says that God tempted him. That word tempt there is an interesting word that we need to make sure we understand uh, what it says and what it doesn't say. Because it says there that it came to pass after these things that God did tempt Abraham. Now in James 1.13, the Bible tells us that God doesn't tempt anybody. It says that no man, let no man say when he is tempted, I'm tempted of God. For God, number one, can't be tempted with evil. And number two, he doesn't tempt any man. But when it, when it says in verse, 20, verse 1 of chapter 22 that God tempted him, we have to pause and make sure we understand what God is actually doing here. Uh, the word tempt here does not mean what we think it means when we think of tempt. Uh, when, uh, when someone brought cupcakes in this morning, right? Some of you were tempted. And some of you gave in to that temptation one and two and three or four times, right? Depending on how many cupcakes you had. That's a temptation. Now, if we had put out uh, a, a plate of celery, many of us would not be as tempted, if at all, to partake in celery. I read, I read a statistic that celery actually has zero calories and it burns uh, calories. And so if you follow that line of thinking, celery can kill you. Uh, because it doesn't give you anything, but it takes away. If you eat celery long enough, it'll kill you. So don't put your life in danger. Uh, at least put some good dip on it or something and, uh, and give yourself something there. But, you know, there's temptations, and that's what we think of when we think of temptations. The Bible word there is uh, for uh, the tempt there, it would make more sense if we said the word test. So God is testing Abraham. The temptation, at least from Abraham's perspective, was you want me to sacrifice my son. We see because we know the end of the story, that was not God's intention. That was what he was leading Abraham to do, but he never intended and was never going to let Abraham actually kill his son Isaac. But it says there that he tempted Abraham. And what what we'll see though is that though God did not want a physical sacrifice, he did want a spiritual sacrifice. And so as he brought Abraham to this moment on the mountain, we see that he is looking for a sacrifice. He's looking for worship, and this is his call to worship. Notice how he begins his his, uh, conversation with Abraham in verse 2. He says, take now thy son, thine only son. I want you to pay attention to these words that he uses. The first phrase there is, your only son. Now we know biologically that that is not his only son. We just read a few chapters ago that how he had sent Ishmael away, cutting off his inheritance, but in a way he was saying, you have no part in my family anymore. You have no part in us. Very, I mean, very cruel way to say it, but in a way he's saying, you're dead to me. I don't, want any, I don't have anything to do with you. God led him to do these things. And that's, where, that's why God says, you're the only son. Now, he is the only son of promise, and that's what God is getting at. 
trying to direct Abraham's mind to where it needs to be. Take your only son, the son that I intended you to have, the son that I'm going to fulfill the promise in. Take your only son. But notice he says, not only your only son, he says, whom thou lovest. I mean, does that need to be said? I mean, don't, don't you, you know, if, if, I, if, if you ask me, take the kid that you love, I'm like, oh, that doesn't narrow it down. Some days, maybe, you know, the, the kid that you're upset with, oh, yeah, okay, I know what you're talking about. Or, or take the kid that you, uh, that you like. Well, no, I can't, you can't narrow that down. Why does God put it in there? Because here's, here's what he's getting at. Because he is leading Abraham to a spiritual sacrifice, he is asking him, Abraham, Abraham, who has your heart? What has your heart? I know that you love this boy. I gave you this boy. I gave you this boy because I love you. And I know that you love me. But you also have a son that you love as well. Where does your devotion lie? Very similar to the way Jesus asked Peter in John 21 when they were sitting around the fire and Jesus said, Peter, lovest thou me more than these? Do you love me more than this? Do you love me more than the other desires, the other things that capture your attention? And he, he goes on that, that, uh, uh, that, that story that he ends up answering Peter three times, feed my sheep, feed my lambs. And, and he's trying to get Peter to, to, to stop and look at where is my true devotion? Where does my heart lie? Is it with him or is it with something else? Notice what he says, what he wants him to do. Take your son and thy, your only son whom you love and get thee into the land of Moriah, verse 2, and offer him there for a burnt offering upon one of the mountains which I will tell thee of. Now, the Mosaic law has yet to be in, in, introduced and so uh, what, the ways that we understand burnt offerings and sacrifices and things like that, we get from Moses' law which won't come up until Exodus but they were doing burnt sacrifices long before that. Abraham did these things. He had witnessed God do, uh, God had told him how to do these things earlier when he made a covenant with him. I believe that Abraham did this on a regular basis. We see that he would make an altar and he would worship there and more than likely that would include a, an animal sacrifice. I believe that he had taught Isaac to do these things because in a little while later, Isaac knew that a lamb was necessary. He was looking around. Father, we have the fire of the wood, but where's the lamb? He knew, this is not a new thing to me. If this is Isaac's first experience at worship, he would have never asked for these things. But he knew there were certain things that had to be involved for it to be a sacrifice unto God, for it to be a worship time unto God. But he says, I want you to take your son and I want you to offer him up for a burnt offering. There would be no coming back from this. This would not be a, a temporary test. This is a permanent thing that he is asking Abraham to do. And what he's saying to him, in other words, is give me your greatest and your best. That one thing that is greater to you than anything else, give him to me. Hold nothing back from me. And the response we see is immediate. Verse number 3, Abraham rose up early. He got right into it and he did not waste time. This is only because of a man who has followed by faith for years and years, who has established a habit of obedience and instant uh, response to the faith that God gives him. He has learned to follow by faith. This is not elementary Christianity. This is definitely, uh, this is definitely a, a, much, a much higher level. For three days they traveled. 
And once again, we find Abraham following God to an unknown place, an unknown destination, but this time, there is no bright future ahead. He knows how this story is going to end. And as we read verse 5, we realize that Abraham knew exactly what was going to happen. I don't think he told anybody else. I don't know if Sarah knew. I don't know if, I don't think Isaac knew until the very end. I don't think his servants knew. How do you say that to someone? How do you explain that to someone? But Abraham knew exactly what was going on. He was going to worship. This time the worship would be different. though. This time it would be painful. This time it would cost Abraham dearly. And he knew that he would not be leaving this worship service with a smile on his face and a song on his lips. Today in our, in our time, we think of worship as a rousing experience heartfelt songs. Uh, we feel uh, better about our walk with God. We feel more in love uh, with Him as we leave. Our hearts are stirred. Uh, a, re- a rekindled passion within us. And that's not inaccurate. It is incomplete. But Abraham knew that this worship service God was calling him to would not end the way that we hope worship time ends. Now don't skip ahead of the, to the end of the story just yet. I want you to travel with me. Travel with Abraham for three days as he takes Isaac away on what he knows will be their last father and son trip together. See him as he watches Sarah hold her boy and kiss him and say goodbye for the very last time. Listen to that one-sided conversation through the desert because Abraham doesn't really feel like talking. What do you say? He's got something on his mind and Isaac can tell. So they ride together in silence. Watch Abraham that night, that first night as he lies awake, gazing at his son asleep, and unaware of what is to come in just a few short days. The second night, as he spends a second sleepless night, thinking about how long he and Sarah had waited for, the, for, his, for his birth. 25 years to wait for a answer to prayer for a promise from God and now all of a sudden God wants it back. And like a knife in his gut, Abraham realizes yet again that Isaac won't be simply taken away from him. No, he has a part to play. He will be the one to end his son's life. And Abraham calls this worship. Very interesting that Abraham gives it that type of a title. Because I think if we were to come up we were to put our heads together, we would come up with several different ways to call that request from God. But I don't think any of us would call it worship. Though Abraham's test, through Abraham's testing, though, we see important truths about worship that dig deeper than an emotional stirring of the heart and that will resonate longer than the music will. And after all of the singing has died down and this auditorium becomes silent, In just an hour or two, it'll be shorter than a two, but in an hour or two, if you were to walk in here, it's it's very quiet. There is no more singing. There is no more uh, noise of of God's people lifting His great name up in song or in in through the Word. Worship lasts, true worship lasts longer than that. The definition of worship is this, to adore, to pay divine honors to, to reverence with supreme respect, or to honor with extravagant love 
and extreme submission. I like that last one. To honor with extravagant love and extreme submission. I want you to understand before we get into this that true worship is not merely something that we do between 11 and noon on Sunday mornings. Or if you come back for a double dose and you come back from 6 to 7, or if you come on Wednesday nights at 7.30 for the prayer meeting, or maybe if you go to some extra meeting, or it's not true worship is not something limited to your car and listening to worship music on the radio station. True worship is much more than that. True worship does not always require stirring music or meaningful lyrics. In fact, it is more action than it is words. True worship is not so much the process by which we stir up good and thankful feelings about God. Rather, it is more about our outward response to God displayed in actions. It is my goal this morning for us to elevate our view of worship from simply singing in the pew to something that is greater, much more active, and outward. Let me share this morning with you six statements about true worship. See them there in your notes. Number one, true worship is a proof of a living faith. True worship proves that the faith that is inside is genuine, is real, is not dead. As we see at the beginning that God tempted Abraham in verse number 1, God tempted him. He tested him. James chapter 2 and verse 20, I want to read that for you as we will be there in just a couple of weeks as we make our way through James. But James refers to this passage in Genesis 22 and he says in verse number 20, he says, but wilt thou know, O vain man, that... Faith without works is dead. Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he had offered Isaac his son upon the altar? Seest thou how faith wrought with his works and by works was his faith made perfect? And we knew from Genesis 15, 6 that it says that Abraham believed God and it was counted to him for righteousness. His belief or his faith was counted to him for righteousness. Paul spends a lot of time in Romans explaining that to him that it is by faith that we are counted righteous. But now James, to some, seems to uh, offer a contradiction saying, no, 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 it was by works that Abraham was counted righteous. But if we dig deeper and we understand it, that both of them are correct. Because faith, as James explained, that has no works is a dead faith. I think it was Martin Luther that said, we are... Saved by faith alone, but we are not saved by faith that is alone. Faith comes with something else. True faith comes along with works, with an expression. It's the same way that we experience love. I can say I love you, but if my actions don't back that up or prove it, it's not not genuine, is it? Remember when you were getting whooped by your parents when you were younger? Did, did, did dad ever do this, this, this horrible, he make this horrible statement to you that kind of just like threw mixed signals all the way? I love you, son. Whap! You know, like, wait a minute. If you loved me, you would let me go. <laughs> you know, you would uh, give, me, give me mercy, give me grace. Don't, don't spank me or don't ground me or whatever it is. We say, I love you, son. Or uh, the only other thing worse than, is, than that is, this is going to hurt you, me more than it's going to hurt you. Like, dad... Are you sure about that? 
Let me take a whack, and then you tell me if you still feel that way. Now, I didn't understand that until I became a parent, and I realized what goes on the inside of a parent's heart, rather than what is displayed on the outside of my backside. That's a, that's, that's a horrible, it's a horrible uh, thing for a kid to understand, but as we grow older, we understand that. But if I don't, okay, and the same thing with my wife. I say I love you to my wife, but if I never show that with action, is it real? I said I love you 12 years ago. And if I change my mind, I'll let you know. I don't ever do anything for her. I don't ever give her any kind of evidence that I have love for her in my heart. She just better take my word for it. That's not a, that's not love. True love. Okay, uh, that, that's not, that's not, a, that's not a, a, a genuine love. We wear rings. Uh, uh, we put them on uh, during a wedding uh, as a symbol of our love. Yes, you can get married without a ring. You can be married without a ring. But those of you guys that normally wear a ring, how long can you go without wearing your ring before your wife notices and says something? Uh, excuse me, where's, where's your ring? We went swimming in the lake a couple of years ago. I, was like, I think it might have been the summer before we, we moved here. Uh, and I, I had that, that ring for seven, eight, well, no, it have been ten years or so, I guess it was. And one day it just slipped right off of my finger and into Spanaway Lake. And it's still there somewhere uh, in the muck in the mire at the bottom of the lake. You know, uh, I was still married. But now there was, a, there was a little bit of a red flag now. Like, you need to hurry up and get that thing put back on. I still loved her. But I, that was the symbol of my love. And so I had to hurry up and quickly and go find a ring and, and, and bought a ring and put it on. It's still the same ring. I wear it on. I'm not allowed to really take it off or, or play with it anymore. But uh, and that, that's, that's a symbol of it. And that was something that we exchanged to show that we love each other. But even that one time exchange was not enough. My wife, believe it or not, she expects it to be proven time and time and time again. I mean, more than once. I mean, goodness. But that's what God expects. And worship is the proof of a living faith. James said, a man may say, well, you have faith and I have works. James says, show me your faith without your works. I'll show you my faith by my works. That's how I'm going to prove that I have. None of us can see each other's faith. But we see the works. We see the evidence of that. We see the proof of your following by faith. When you step out into faith, that's what we see, and that's what true worship is. Faith that is merely sung about or spoken of is useless, must be displayed. Faith that doesn't do anything is worthless. Actions prove that our faith is real, and that is worship. Because worship is the reaction of faith. If you have faith, worship is what comes out. Number two, true worship is listening to God's voice and yielding to His will. We see again in verse number one, Abraham's response. If Abraham was going to make a song of this passage, it would have two verses. The first verse would be simply, here I am. And the second verse would be my, uh, God will provide himself a lamb. Those are the only two things Abraham says, the whole story. And he says, here I am three times. Twice to God and once to His Son. But notice in verses 1 and 11, His response, both at the very beginning of the 
test, and at the very climax of the test, his response is still the same. God, I'm here. Abraham, here I am, God. I am listening to you, and I am yielded to your will. Now we see the yielding more in verse 11 because it's easy for us to say, I am here ready to do whatever you want, God, before God tells us what He wants. But then when God tells us what He wants us to do, and we find ourselves on the mountain with our greatest blessing on the altar, and it's bound, and we have the knife in our hand raised and ready to go, there is nothing else left to do but put an end to that dream. Then when God says, Abraham, still here. I'm ready to follow. I'm yielded. I'm listening. That is true worship. To truly worship God is to put God in His rightful place. That is to say, in the first and highest place. That is true worship. True worship is simple obedience to God. We see it in verse number 3. Abraham rose up early in the morning. He got going. And he began to worship. The worship didn't begin on the mountain. It began immediately that morning. Three days ago. And he started towards Moriah. Number three. True worship costs something. True worship is not free. It's not cheap. It costs something. Sometimes it's very expensive. We see for Abraham, it was the greatest. It was the best. Because in verse number 2, he said, Take thou thine only son, Isaac, whom thou lovest. Look with me in verse number 16, because at the end of it, he says, By myself have I sworn, saith the Lord, for because thou hast done this thing and hast not withheld thy son, again, thine only son, because you didn't withhold these things, Because you were ready. Now, he didn't in the end have to kill his son. But in his mind, he knew he had already, he had already paid that price. He was already going through with it. And the only reason he stopped is because God stopped him. Because the writer in Hebrews tells us that he knew somehow God's going to make all this work. But true worship costs us something. I think about David, 2 Samuel, because he had numbered the people, God was going to punish him and he gave him a choice. He says you can be punished with three different ways and he chose one of the ways and it was, uh, it was to fall in the hands of God and God uh, sent a pestilence and started killing uh, many of the people in Israel all because of David's one sin and finally it was stayed and, and, and David knew it's time to uh, come and worship God and he goes to this field of Aruna and he, he says I want to buy this field from you, this threshing floor so that I can offer a sacrifice to God here and, and the man says you're the king. Uh, you can have it. Here's the wood. You can take the, 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 the cattle, uh, the yokes and all those things. You can burn those things. And here's the calf. And here's all the things you need to worship. David said, no, no. Verse 24, he says, I'm not going to sacrifice that which doesn't cost me anything. Because he understood that if I'm going to truly worship, it's got to cost me something. It may not cost a lot. He bought the things for some, for some money and for a king. That's, that's almost like an, 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 an internal resource. But he had to pay something. And for Abraham, this worship was going to cost him something. Think of the woman at the well. Or I'm sorry, not the woman at the well, but the woman that came to Jesus in the house. She broke open the alabaster box of ointment. 
poured it on Jesus' feet. And the, the disciples and the people in the room get upset and they get mad because they say she wasted all of this. So no, no, no. She's done this because she recognizes what's going on and she recognizes who I am. She's worshiping. She has paid a very high price to worship. True worship costs something. Number four, true worship is powered by faith. As I read these verses, I think, how in the world could Abraham do this? How in the world could Abraham get the the, the strength not only to, in a way, it seems, okay, maybe he could kind of grit his teeth, close his eyes, and just do it, get it over with, right? Like rip the Band-Aid off rather than slowly peel it off. But no, God made him wait for three days. God said, don't kill him here. I want you to get on your, on your camel or whatever it is, and I want you to go for three days. I want you to have to think about it for three days. Then I want you to have to climb a mountain. And then I want you to have to build a brand new altar. And then I want you to kill him. And then you have to go back for three days thinking about what you just did. And then you got to break the news to your wife. And then you got to deal with all of that. How could he do all of this? Faith. Notice in verse number 5, the faith of Abraham. He says, Abide ye here with the ass, and I and the lad will go yonder and worship and come again. Notice that. There's faith there. Somehow this is going to work out. I am totally confused right now. I don't see how it's going to work, but somehow this is going to work out. We see it again in verse number 8. When his, when his son says, Father, where's the, where's the lamb? I see the fire. I see the wood. Where's the lamb? And he says, My son God will provide himself a lamb for a burnt offering. In other words, he said, Isaac is going to be sacrificed because God commanded it. That's, how I'm going, that's why I'm doing this. I have faith because God commanded it. But Isaac will somehow return because God promised it. Because he knows that in Isaac shall thy seed be called. And Isaac isn't married yet. Isaac has no children yet. He can't have a great multitude of, of, of descendants if his own son hasn't had any children yet. And so he knew somehow this is going to work out. Hebrews 11 tells us that it was by faith. I think it's very interesting uh, when uh, the writer uh, begins to list all of the different heroes of the faith and he lists Abraham twice. I believe he's the only one who gets mentioned twice. But it says in verse number 17, by faith Abraham, when he was tried, offered up Isaac, and he that had received the promises offered up his only begotten son, of whom it was said that in Isaac shall thy seed be called, accounting that God was able to raise him up even from the dead. He's, God is going to do something here. This is tough and difficult, and I don't know what God is going to do, but he has had a long journey of at least 25 years of seeing that God tells him he's going to do something, and he doesn't tell him what, when, or how, and it still happens in God's timing. Because true worship is powered by faith. God will provide somehow. Next, number five, true worship places the promise giver above the promise. We see it two times in verse number 12. God says almost the same thing both times. He says in verse 12, towards the end of the verse, Now I know that thou fearest God, seeing thou hast not withheld thy son, thine only son, 
from me. He said the same thing kind of in verse 16. Thou hast not withheld thy son. It was almost as if God was testing Abraham to prove that Abraham loved God and was devoted to God more than he was to Isaac. Essentially saying to Abraham, you were willing to follow me in order to get the blessings. You were told that if you followed me and did these things, you would be blessed. Now that you've got the blessing, will you still follow me? After you've already gotten all the things that I promised you, will you keep following? Will you follow without the blessing? What if you lost that blessing? Would you still follow me? Remember my wife asked me one of the most unfair questions she's ever asked me as we were dating. We were pretty, we were not engaged yet, but we were pretty close, and she asked me this question. She said, if I got into a horrible car accident and uh, couldn't use my arms or legs anymore, would you still love me? Like, well, started thinking about how long we've been together, and of course, there's only one answer that you can give, right? But you think about it, that's the same thing, is if I can't be the woman that you wanted you expected at marriage, will you still have me? God says, if I don't give you the blessings that you expected, or if I give them to you only for a time and take them away from you, what are you going to do? Here's a test, Abraham. What do you love more? The promise or the God that gave you the promise? Think about it. The God that gave you the promise could give you another promise. But what do we value more? The promise or the promise giver? God wasn't looking, as I said, for a spiritual, for physical sacrifice. He was looking for a spiritual one. That's why Paul says in Romans 12, I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, wholly acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service. The word service there, another good word for it is worship. He says this is how you worship. By giving yourself as a living sacrifice. By giving up your dreams and your hopes and your plans and your life. Giving them to me and placing them in my hands. And letting me do that which I want to do with your life. Lastly, number six. True true worship impacts future generations. I like this. This... uh, all of these are applicable, and all of these make sense to me, at least. Uh, uh, they're very, they're very obvious. But this last one is is hope for me as a father, or as just trying to be a Christian to leave some sort of a lasting legacy that others will be blessed in the future. We see it two different ways. We see it first how it impacted Isaac, because we see that this was not Isaac's first chance to worship. This was not his first time to worship him. Because we see it there in verse number, uh, verse number seven, he says, "My, my, behold uh, the fire in the wood. Where's the burnt? Where's the lamb?" We see Isaac was like, "Hey, Dad, I know, we, I know, we've done this many times before. We've got two of the three things that we need. Where's the third thing?" And Abraham doesn't have the heart to tell him, "Son, it's going to be you." But he knew it was going to be. But think about it, because Isaac was not privy to God's conversation earlier. But then, when God speaks to him out of heaven, Isaac hears that conversation. And the Bible doesn't record that 
that uh, last bit very detailed, but as God stops him and calls from out of heaven and Isaac is realizing he's lying on the altar and he is submitted. I don't think Isaac was a three-year-old kid. He was strong enough to carry the wood because it says that Abraham put the wood on Isaac, actually a, a symbolic of Christ carrying the wood up to Calvary, but he was carrying the wood on himself. How, he, it wasn't three sticks. How much can a three-year-old carry? How much firewood? He was strong enough. I'm thinking he's at least a teenager. Some would say he, was even a, he, was, he might have even been a man. But he was strong enough to carry. And yet he submitted to his father and laid on the altar going, Dad, I don't understand. But this isn't the first time that you've followed God without knowing the whole story. And you've been faithfully following Him. And I have witnessed in the short time that I've been around that God is first in your life, and God has always come through. And I know that Isaac knew about the promise, that you're going to be the promised son, and through you there's going to be many descendants. And I know that Isaac had to be sitting there and all these things going through his mind, and then they both hear the voice, don't lay your hand on him. Now I know that you put me above everything else. Isaac's hearing this. And Isaac's saying, you know what, this is real to my dad. Worship is a real thing. It's not just a song he sings at church. It's not just a thing he does in front of everybody else. He got us alone and we worshiped. And I was going to be the sacrifice, but God spared me. We see it impacted him. We see it impacted him in the way that he continued on. Read Hebrews 11 and notice that Isaac is mentioned and notice how blah of a reason that Isaac is mentioned in the hall of faith. All he did was he passed his faith down. But that's huge. It's not conquering giants and, and doing all of these great things of, 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 of incredible uh, courage and strength like some of these others did. All he did was he passed it down. He passed the promise down to his sons. But that was huge. Where did he get that kind of faith from? His father. Through the true worship. But lastly, it Im- impacted future Israel. Because notice at the end of the passage there, he named the place Jehovah Jireh. means God will provide, verse number 14. But it says there, as it is said to this day, which means that it was continued with that name. Everybody knew that's that's where Isaac was almost sacrificed. God provided a, a lamb. And they began to understand this idea of a sacrificial substitute. And of course, there are parallels to the Gospel there. There are many here. But we see the one, and I just want to point out the one from Romans 8.32. He that spared not His own Son, but delivered Him up for us all. Speaking not only not of Abraham, but of Messiah, of Jesus. And I wrote this down there, and it's in your notes. But we see in the one story, a sinful man does not spare his son for a holy God. Neither did a holy God spare His Son for sinful men, did He? I'm so glad that God said, you know what, I love my Son too much. I love you, I mean, I do, but I don't love you that much. Because it really, that was the only thing that could have saved us. Jesus. And if God had sat up in heaven, if the Father had sat in heaven and said, you know what, folks, I feel bad for you down there. You're in a tough predicament. I can't give him up. Sorry. Maybe there's another way. In fact, no, there isn't. Oh well, enjoy it while you got it. He didn't do that. 
Abraham, God, I'm here for you. It's true worship. You're first. You're highest. This is going to hurt. And God, I don't like it. This is where I am. As I think about the song, we're even singing just a few moments, but as you sing, here I am to worship. I know that song wasn't around during then, but I can just see Abraham building that altar with that lyric in his mind. Here I am to worship. Here I am to bow down. Here I am to say that You're my God. You're God. Not Him. He's not my God. He's my Son. I love Him. You're God. I'm here to worship. However much it costs. However much it hurts. I'm here for You. God gave His best for me. In Jesus. My true worship is giving Him my best in response. So as we come and we sing on Sundays, or as you're in their car listening to the radio and that one song just grips your heart, that's worship. But It goes so much further than that. It happens at work. It happens in, in private. It happens in public. It doesn't always have to have a rhythm and a beat and a melody to it. It can be in the daily day-to-day routine. And the things that God says... I need you to prove that you love me more than these. That's true worship. Would you pray with me?